are in the middle of James, and when you get asked to preach on James, what would normally be an honor is turned into something of a terrifying experience. You know, I asked Pastor Bill, are you sure I can't just clean the urinals or uh, change poopy diapers or something? Anything else ministry-wise than to preach on James? Preaching on James... God has humbled me this last week or two. Uh, and he's also made me appreciative of, of the kind of humble leaders that we have here at Life Church. That we have people who are living out what James is talking about. Not living within their own strength and in their own pride, but we have pastors who are willing to share the pulpit. We have elders who are willing to, to stand up and, and to preach and to take risks for God. We have leaders all across the board who are actually involved in, in doing uh, great things here and doing it with a sense of humble adventure before this mighty God that we serve. But God is reinforcing this humility in us. And I think he's doing it because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been conspiring. And they have this plan for Life Church. And, they, and they're, they're all giggling and excited because God is about to reveal this to us. You know, we're going to go to James 4 today, but I want you to start out in Exodus 16. The story has been coming to mind again and again as I've been thinking about this series. The story of Israel, a people that has just been liberated from slavery, that has come out of Egypt, that has been degraded for all of these years and has finally been liberated and they, they walk across the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is destroyed and they come across the other side and you think that they'd be such a grateful, humble people. Huh. But look in Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And God says, I will give you this supernatural bread from heaven, and you just collect enough for yourself, for each person. There's plenty to go around, but just collect enough for, for, the, for that day and the next day. I'll shower down some more. Don't collect too much. Don't keep it in your fridge. They didn't have fridges back then. But don't keep it. Pretty simple directions. Look in verse 14. When the dew was gone in the morning, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Manna. That's it. That's, that's, uh, the word in Hebrew. For what is it? Manna? What is it? 
Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. That's about the size of a two-liter bottle, an omer. That the Israelites did as, as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. And I've been thinking about that with James because it seems very clear to me that the Word of God is telling us you cannot hoard manna. You cannot hoard God's grace. You cannot keep it to yourself. You cannot start up a 401k for manna and put it there. You cannot somehow just create this little hedge fund of God's grace and just keep it for yourself. You cannot do like what they do with the lottery. You win $20 million and people say, you know, I'll just take the lump sum right now because I could invest it better than anybody else. (laughs) And what do they do? (laughs) They squander it. But you can't do that with God's grace. He doesn't give you the option. Give me a lump sum. Give me my share, Father. But we try to do it anyway, don't we? And it's like that candy bar that you get as a kid, and you're like, I think I'll save this till later. And you stick it in your pocket, and you walk around all day, and you hold it every once in a while, because you're like, oh, my candy bar. I'm going to save this for later. It's going to be great. I'm going to eat it when Mom isn't looking. (laughs) And then what happens? Candy bar? It just just melts. It's disgusting. It's chocolate-like coating your pocket. Yet we try to do that with God's grace. And God says, I will give you grace day by day. But here you are replacing my grace with religion. That's what you call hoarding manna. That's what you call hoarding grace. You call it religion. I, I should say mere religion. Because there is a positive religion. But, but that mere religion, that sick religion, is when you hoard it. Carl Bart describes this well. He says, when man hears God's word, he does not believe. If he did, he would listen. But in religion, he talks. If he believed, he would accept a gift. But in religion, he takes something for himself. all of us have that temptation, right? And yet pride is that message of James. And James comes in as this pride smasher. And, and just, just recap the book with me. James comes in and he says, oh good, you have some wealth. Fantastic. But did you know that your wealth will rot? Did you know that if you place your trust in, in, in your wealth, God will be displeased with you, and the discrimination that's coming from your wealth against the poor is sickening to God. And then some people say, well, you, but you know what? I'm a very spiritual person. I have faith. And he says, well, where are your works then? If you have faith, where are your works? Because faith and works go together. So where are your works? And this dead religion again appears, and James smashes it. And, and there are apparently even some who are saying, well, you know, I have speaking gifts. I am a rhetorician. I'm a good teacher. And James says, well, fantastic. 
Did you know that teachers will be judged more harshly in the judgment? And it's like any single point that we would want to raise up pride for ourselves in the church, James just demolishes it. And the reason why this is so hard for us to hear is because we're Americans. And we Americans are independent. We South Dakotans are independent. And we say, we can do it ourselves. Lawnmower's broken. I'll fix it myself. Thank you very much. Need to work on the house? Yep, can do that. Need to do my taxes? Yep, got it covered. Thanks. We know how to be self-reliant, and there's something good about that. But when that turns into a religion, when we bring that attitude in, in, into church, into our Christian lives, things go haywire. And that you hear this proverb, you know, you, you got to look out for number one. Nobody else is going to look out for number one, so you got to look out for number one. Get it done yourself. Watch out for your own interests. And James will not have any of that. I want to present to you some challenging ideas today as we read through James. And so turn there if you have a Bible with you. James 4, verses 1 through 6. And, and I'm going to present just, just what I'm reading here. I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to just rehearse what God is bringing to us in his word. Three consequences of pride. But let's hear the word of God first. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If I'm reading this correctly, I think James is pointing out three consequences of pride. The first consequence is this. Pride creates endless conflict. Pride creates endless conflict. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he asks in verse 1. And, and this is a church, and these are churches, I should say, that are dealing with strife. James doesn't seem to be speaking hypothetically here. This is for real. I mean, look at all the words he uses. Uh, fights, quarrels, battle, <laughs> kill even. What is going on at this church? I thought the first century church was kind of supposed to be together, right? Those were the good old days. Apparently not. He says, where do they come from? 
says the battles the battle is between you and somebody else is, is that really where they come from somebody wronged you no he says in verse 1 don't they come from your desires that battle within you within you because we love to blame people outside of us, don't we? <laughs> we are such a victim society. Why, why is the, 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 the price of our neighborhood, why, what the, you know, the value of our homes, why is it going down? Well, it's my neighbor's fault. Why, why is the workplace not you know, a happy place? Well, it's clearly my boss's fault. Why, why is our marriage not you know, as good as it could be? Well, it's my spouse's fault. Why, why is church not exactly like I want to, it to be? Well, it's got to be the elder's fault or the pastor's fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault here. And so we, we're very good at identifying the people out there who are making things more difficult. And you know, sometimes they are. But James says, maybe the source of the problem is not out there. Maybe the real source of the problem is inside of you. You want to focus on the battle outside with you and somebody else and Republicans and Democrats and, and people who are on this side and on that side. And that is not the real source of strife. The real source of strife is actually in here. But we don't say that. We don't, we don't want to look in, inside too much. We'd rather have uh, <laughs> a fight with somebody. And, and, and the fight looks something like this. I go, rah, rah, you go, rah, rah, you go, rah, rah. And then eventually, somebody says, you know what? You may not care about me, but I have my rights. <laughs> and as soon as you say the word rights, then it's on. <laughs> you know, the gloves are coming off. Because rights, that is my, my God-given indelible rights. They exist within me, and, and you are trampling on me, and I am such a martyr, and you're martyring me. Because I have my rights, and you're trampling. We are such a litigious society now. <laughs> you may remember that really profound theological movie with Hulk Hogan called Suburban Commando. Um, it won a lot of awards, I'm sure. Uh, but but you know, in there, there's this one scene where Hulk Hogan is is walking is in the neighborhood, and these guys, kind of burly looking biker guys, come up, and they're like, "You know what we're gonna do to you?" And Hulk Hogan's like. Oh, yeah, I know. You're going to, like, bash my face in. No, man, this is the 90s. We're going to sue you. That's exactly the kind of thing that we say now. We, we, we eventually default to what our rights are. You know, and, and there's something almost biblical about it. Our founding fathers took the, the, the themes of freedom and liberty in the Bible but they kind of also wed them to secular enlightenment ideas of rights. And we ended up with this very mixed heritage in America. So that when, it, when this idea of rights goes to seed, we end up with entitlement. And if you're honest with yourself, you are entitled. <laughs> I mean, you, you feel entitled to certain things. You know, and, and I, I had to catch myself this last year because I was like, you know, well, I'm, I'm working so hard, and I'm responsible, and I mow my lawn. And I deserve this because I worked for it. 
And somebody pointed out, I said, wow, that sounds like a lot of entitlement. Because I was, I was complaining against people who were entitled. Ah, you know, the people who don't do any work but still think they're entitled. Some guy's like, well, you sound pretty entitled yourself. Oof. Maybe the source of conflict is pride. Because pride will do that. Pride will create conflicts at work and in the home and certainly in church. But it starts on the inside. And maybe some of you would benefit getting on your face in the morning and just starting out in that posture every morning. I, I don't mean like on your pillow, falling back asleep. I mean, you know, getting on your knees and put your head on the ground and, and say, God, I'm humbling myself. It is not about me today. And maybe that practice would be helpful. And for, for others of you, maybe it means going to counseling, finding therapy with a, with a godly counselor. Some of you might really benefit from this program, Sozo, uh, which allows you to be introspective in a positive way. You know, you don't want to linger there because that can turn into pride too, but... But, but something about saying, God, the problem is really within me, and I acknowledge that. And if you, if you, if you resolve the conflict there, maybe the external conflicts will take on a new light. The second thing that James points out is this. Here's my second point. Pride hurts intimacy with God. Pride hurts intimacy with God. Look at the second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. You do not have because you do not ask. And you don't ask God. Ask God. Why? Because God knows your desires. That's why, you know, and, and he's not ashamed of them. He made you that way. He made you with desires. He made you with very kind of basic, primal desires too. God, I'm hungry right now. And God says, I know. That's why I'm giving you manna. God knows you have deeper desires than that too. And God wants to, to meet... The, this may come as a shocker for some of you. God wants you to be happy. He does. He is a good father. He wants you to be happy. He, he doesn't get any pleasure seeing, seeing his people constantly somber and just, you know, torn up and holy and, oh, look at me, uh, ashes on my head constantly. No, he wants you to be happy. But genuine happiness. Not this false image of happiness. Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, delight in Him, which is proper, then He will also give you the delights that you seek in your heart. But if you need something, if you desire something, ask God for it. And, and you can almost see this kind of conversation going on with James. James anticipates the objection. Somebody's going to say, well, I did ask God, and he said no. Or I asked God, and, and he just ignored me. Right? I mean, look, look in verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
here God is, seeking intimacy with us, seeking to have a genuine face-to-face relationship with us even. And we come in and we barge in. We're like, God, I like this, 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 and this, please. Thank you. See you next week. Or, or, or maybe we do linger there, but it's just kind of slimy. You know what I mean? The slimy prayers? Our son, right? It's great having a young son. I don't have to ask his permission to use sermon examples. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the past couple of weeks has been protesting when we go out of the house. I say, hey, Z, we're going to do something really fun. We're going to go play video games at an arcade. He's like, I don't want to go. Are you crazy? He's like, I just want to stay here. Okay. You know? and the next day, hey, Z, let's go, let's go to the park and let's feed the ducks. I, I want to stay here. Really? And, 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 I, and I say, no, no, no. But I started asking him, like, why do you want to stay home so badly? And it finally came out. I had really had to push, but it finally came out. He wants to wear his Spider-Man outfit, and he knows he can't wear his Spider-Man outfit if he goes outside the doors. So he would rather stay at home and wear his Spider-Man outfit and be miserable. And so he asked me, you know, can I stay home? No, you may not stay home. I insist. I mandate that you come and have fun with us. (laughs) And I'm a mean daddy that way. But it's not just kids. We do the same thing. And you know, (laughs) James is not saying your motives have to be super, like, ultra pure. Like, you can't have any kind of uh, self-seeking motive at all. He's not saying that you have to ignore yourself or ignore your situation. Um... He's not saying that you have to have the magic words while you're praying. He's not saying you have to be super religious to do this. In fact, quite the contrary. When we come to God so often, we have this inherently misleading, selfish desire that we present before God. But those of us who have been in the faith for a few years, we really know how to code it well. We really know how to package it in in, in good religious speech. James may be saying to those of us who have been Christians for a while, would you just take the religious gloss off for a second? Just, just, just ask God for what you really want. And maybe if you ask God very point blank what you want, you might be able to see here that it's not, your motives really aren't as pure as you thought they were. Sometimes God does give us an answer. He says no. Because I want you to be happy really happy. But James says that these particular people are seeking out answers to prayer to meet their pleasures. And, and that Greek word, uh, hedonis, is actually where we get our word hedonism. It, it's not just that God, it's not that God has an objection with us wanting to be happy and fulfilled. God has an ob- objection to us being hedonists of pursuing pleasure for the sake of pleasure itself. God objects to the idea that somehow we will be truly happy people if we shoot at our pleasures directly and try to get them met directly. (laughs) Because it doesn't work. (laughs) 
I mean, come on. I mean, be honest here. Have you ever had a season of your life where you just kind of shot for pleasures and, and you managed to get some, you know? You, 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 you shot for whatever you wanted and you got it and, and you just, you know, it were all about the pleasure and you did that for a season. Has anybody here, has that actually made you a long-term happy person? <laughs> Did you actually ever say, man, I'm really glad that I just spent the last three months just pursuing my pleasures just nonstop and, and making myself as happy as I possibly could and just going from one pleasure to another. I'm so glad I did that because, man, I'm just set for life now. I have so much happiness stored up in my heart. <laughs> no. No, it's like junk food, man. You know, you, 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 you eat it, and like an hour and a half later, you're still feeling sick, and then two hours later, you're hungry again. And it's back to that nasty candy bar that you stay, saved in your pocket. Okay, I'll take it out now. It's kind of gross, and it's going to make me feel gross again. But God won't have that. Because really, in the end, pride has this idolatrous component. Pride takes us away from God and it tries to create a false God, a God who just meets pleasures instantly. I find Augustine really profound on this theme. Augustine, who writes in the 400s, says that pride is a defect of nature by the very act of refusing subjection to him who is supreme. He goes on and he says that pride always leads to the idolatry of self-worship for the human soul, quote, abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its purpose and becomes a kind of end unto itself. That is, as Augustine says in in a memorable phrase, sin is the heart curved in on itself. I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. Is the sin, that the prideful sin is the heart curved in on itself. It's like an ingrown toenail, but of, of the worst kind. And when we stop looking towards God and we stop seeking intimacy with God and we look to ourselves, we are saying, God, I don't need you anymore. I'll find ways to get my own needs met. I'll find direct pleasures out in the world and, and I'll just go right there instead of going through you. What does James say about this? <laughs> what does gentle James say about this practice? Verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? And why shouldn't God envy intensely? He made us for himself. We belong to him. He has given everything to us. He has given up his own son to redeem us from hell. And we say, God, well, I'm sure we can find a better way here. You know, sure, we'll spend a little time with you here, but, you know, I can get my intimacy needs met elsewhere too. I need a supplement God uses the strongest terms here. He says, you adulterers. More literally, you adulteresses. And James is calling back the language of the prophets. 
of saying Israel, who is the bride of God, has turned away from God and is seeking other gods, other idols, and they are adulteresses. She who is supposed to be the bride of the Almighty has instead become a whore. And when James says that friendship with the world is hatred towards God, he's not talking about like a Facebook friendship. He's talking about the kind of intimacy friendship that exists on the side of love towards God. This very kind of powerful friendship, a committed friendship where intimacy needs are met. And in this case, God says, you have to choose. Am I going to be your husband? Or will you have other men out there? Is this going to be our marriage? Are we going to be intimate? Are you going to find your needs met in me? Or, or, or are you going to try to find a harem on the side? Are your needs going to be met in me? Or, or, or do you want to do a shotgun approach? God yearns jealously. He will have none of those flirtations. He is jealous for you. And that is a righteous jealousy. Not the petty, sinful kind. It is a righteous jealousy because he is in the right. You know, and it just, it's just, that is the story of the Bible, is it not? That, that pride gets God's people again and again. That, that God says, come be intimate with me here in the, in the garden. And Adam and Eve, instead of eating the fruit that God gives them, or the whole place themselves, instead they reach for fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they say, thank you God, we'll do it by ourselves. And uh, take your pick, Samson who instead of trusting the God who gave him this supernatural strength and and the Holy Spirit instead (laughs) goes and pursues his own pleasures again and again thinking, you know, I can pretty much do it by myself. Look at these muscles. Boom. His strength is cut off quite literally. And you have David, a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart, you know, who becomes king and his bride gets the best of him and he looks over his kingdom one day and he's like, yeah, good to be the king. And hey, check out the babe. And then commits adultery and then commits murder to cover up the adultery. And pride, again, separates people from God. Do not cast me from your presence, O God, because I know that my pride will. God has to forgive David, the murderer. And God is just sick of this. He is sick of his people thinking that somehow they can meet their intimacy needs directly out there in the world instead of indirectly by going to God first. There is an analogy here with with human marriages, you understand. Um, If you have a healthy marriage, you empower one another to go out to the world. You empower one another to to, to be out there in ministry and, and, and enjoying things. But the truth is, if you are married, you have to process things through your spouse. You are, you are not permitted to have a life off by yourself apart from. You're not allowed to keep those secrets. 
And, and if you're going to have a God-blessed marriage, you have to be transparent with each other, and you have to be able to give to one another and say, you know what, I hear you, what you have these desires out there, and I bless you with them. I will not only meet your needs directly, but I will help facilitate your desires. But spouses do that for each other. When they really love each other, you do that for your spouse. and You say, I empower you to go do that, that part of your life. But you don't live in dark corners. You certainly don't do it with God. Because pride hurts intimacy with God. Third point is this. Finally, pride starves us of grace. It does. Pride starves us of grace. In verse 6, man. But he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. You know, let, I mean, let that sink into your soul. God has just called those of you who have been whoring around on him in whatever way. He's called you adulteresses, and yet he says now, God gives you more grace. Now, grace for today? Even, even after I, I, I spurned him yesterday? Yes. More grace. Grace after I wronged him so badly? Yes, more grace. Even though I've used up his supply, you haven't used up God's supply of grace. 70 times 7, he will give you more grace, and then he'll give you more after that. Because that's the kind of God we serve. If you feel comfortable, um, would you just do this for a second? Just, just, just hold out your hands like this. When you pray to God, when you worship him, what, what, what does this signify? What does this kind of posture mean? T- talk to me. Receiving. Mm-hmm. What else? Need. Yeah, it means I want, I need. Open, yeah, open to God, openness. Oh, surrender, <laughs> yeah. You can't really fight God like this. Have you ever tried to get in a fight like this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, say, you say, God, I'm open to you, I surrender to you, and, and I want. I'm a beggar before you. Not pushy, just, just here I am, here I am. Now, now go like this. Now, this is what we usually do, right? When, when, when we get money, we go, thank you. And when we get something good in our life, we go, ah, thank you. And uh, we get something that we can invest. We go, ah, yep, thanks. And we pull it in, and we pocket it, and we get it away. You know why? Because, open your hands again. Because if you open up your hands, then, then somebody can drop something in. Fantastic. But they can also take it out, right? And we live this way with God sometimes. God drops something in our hands, and we're like, I think I'll just pull it in. But what happens? Close your hands now, but now if I drop something on there, it just bounces off. 
And that is so often how we work with God. You can put your hands down now. Although keep them before God that way. You know, I've, I've changed my parenting style recently. I'm always changing my parenting style. I have not got it nailed. Pray for me. Um, you know, I really believe in discipline, and I believe in being firm with my children, and that's that's a key part of it. But I've added on something um, because we had some discipline issues recently and some tantrums, and 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 I finally went to see uh, what Christina and I did, and, and we sat down with him because he had just made some nasty comments to to both of us, you know, saying saying, you know, you don't love me, you know, uh, you're mean to me. And we sat down with him, and Christina and I talked about this before, and, and, and we, we sat down with him, and, 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 I, and I held Z's hand, um, and I said, said, son, I want you to be happy. Um, uh, more than anybody else in the world, we want you to be happy. You know, because it's true. Uh, I, I don't want my son to be uh, so serious that he's lost his joy. I, I don't want my son. Yeah. To just be known as the good kid, you know, go, uh, a well-behaved kid. I want my kid to be happy. And, and I want him to know that, too. And I wonder sometimes... If, if the reason why we're so prideful and the reason why we say, God, I, you know, nope, I think I'll take what I have, thanks, and, and I'll go over here and I'll find my own pleasures and you can stay over there. And the reason why, why we have conflict in our hearts and the reason why we're, we're far from God and intimacy and the reason why we won't receive grace is, is because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we keep our hands open to God that he's going to stop giving. And, and if we keep our hands open to God, maybe other people are going to take out what we have. And, and, and if you're honest with yourself, you've had somebody in your life um, that you've looked to and you've said, you're going to make me happy, right? And they say, no, you know, I have to make my own self happy. And you got to that point of saying, well, I'm going to look out for number one then. And maybe it was a parent, and, and maybe it was a pastor, and maybe it was another a fellow Christian. Maybe it was an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-husband or ex-wife. Or you said, you said, I am trusting you to make me happy, and I really believe that you're going to make me happy. And then, then, then they didn't put forward the, the effort that you felt they needed to put forward, and you said, forget it, I'm done. I'm going to look out for number one. And maybe you've done that with God, too. But hear the word of God. He gives more grace. And I can't say it any better than Romans 8.32, so I'm just going to read that instead. Because behind fear is, is, is distrust. Right? Behind pride is fear, and behind fear is just distrust. It's unbelief. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with his son, graciously give us all things?
Let's pray. Pastor Dave, why don't you come up? Father, we, we just say right now, we turn, we turn to you. And we say, help us. And we ask you, with the, mo- with the purest, most authentic motives that we, can, we can, that we ourselves are aware of, saying we have these desires, but we believe today that you are good. We believe today that you want to bless us. We believe today that, that you will get rid of our false happinesses and give us true happiness. And we humble ourselves today so that you can lift us up believe this because you've shown us Jesus. So we pray in his name.